Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hi everyone, uh, my name's Sean, I work in public programs here at ACME and I would like to welcome you to Studio One tonight for Replay, uh, our new series of events curated by ACME and Freeplay uh, and presented in association with Film Victoria. Um, now in tonight's Replay session titled Someone Else's Skin, uh, we'll be exploring a, a host of different game characters to see what makes them work, why they get under our skin and how technology has contributed to the creation of some of the most iconic characters and moments in gaming history. Uh, chairing this evening will be academic, critic and cultural commentator Dan Golding, uh, currently undertaking a PhD in the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne, Dan also digital media. And as a critic, uh, he writes commentary for video, on video games and gaming culture for crikey.com.au. Uh, he also regularly writes for Hyper Magazine and has also been published in PC Powerplay, The Conversation and Kill Your Darlings. Uh, Dan will be joined tonight by curator and academic Helen Stuckey to his left, uh, designer, artist, writer and co-founder of Pachinko Pictures, David Sermon, and freelance writer, game developer and correspondent for Tech Talk Radio, Lena Van der... I can never pronounce your name, Lena. I did this on Sunday. Say that again. Van Deventer. Van Deventer. And we also have a special guest at the end of the night as well, um, which we will talk about a little bit later. Uh, but before I hand over to the panel, I'd also like to welcome uh, Dot A to the studio, who you would have heard as you made your way in tonight, um, and who'll be entertaining us throughout the evening with his mix of uh, bleeps, bass, and repurposed Game Boy sounds. And one of the pioneers of chiptune music within Australia, Dot A has been creating, performing, and promoting music made with uh, retro video game consoles all over Australia. Um, and has even performed at after parties for the internationally renowned Blip Festivals in New York and Tokyo. Uh, so without further ado, please join me in welcoming tonight's chair, Dan Golding, as well as our panel members, Helen, David and Lena. All right, so um, thanks for that um, terrific introduction, um, Sean. Um, so welcome to the, uh, the second of these monthly events of uh, Replay, uh, where we um, hopefully try and get at a, a, a bit of depth and, and some interesting sort of discussion about um, video games and the, the sort of culture that surrounds them. So tonight, um, as you've heard, we'll be looking at um, someone else's skin, um, the idea of inhabiting other characters um, and, and sort of their, their place in uh, video games culture, um, how these um, characters have um, become icons um, and symbols for gaming culture, both in sort of the, the mainstream um, uh, culture and perhaps in a, a, a deeper, more personal way within um, uh, for those who play video games um, and have a history with, with, with games themselves. So I, I think um, as well it's, it's interesting um, to frame the discussion that, that maybe in, in terms of... Um, uh, uh, games don't have these um, uh, human presence 
um, the, the, these human celebrities or icons that, that other media do. So I think um, we've turned to um, these icons of, of um, game characters to sort of guide us and, and um, um, uh, sort of act as a as a um, as as a as a as a, well, as a guiding force um, for for understanding games culture over the years. So, um, all right, let, uh, I just um, I, you've already heard who the panel is, but I thought perhaps we'll, we'll um, go through them a, a little bit more in depth and introduce um, what it is exactly that they do. So, um, immediately to my left here, we have Helen Stuckey, um, who's a curator and researcher. Um, and her recent um, curatorial practices focused on um, the exhibition of video games as cultural artifacts. In particular, um, Helen curated here at ACME um, and uh, produced and curated the Games Lab for a number of years, um, which is, the, as many of you would know, the dedicated exhibition space um, for exploring game culture. Um, She's also currently working on Play It Again, which is a research project uh, addressing the need for institutional collection and preservation um, and uh, documenting and preserving the history of early games and games culture in Australia and New Zealand. So um, join with me in welcoming Helen. To Helen's left, we have David Sermon, uh, who is uh, a game designer, artist, and um, writer. So in 2010, uh, David uh, co-founded Pachinko Pictures, uh, which is a a boutique game studio based here in Melbourne. Um, Previously, he founded and and led the BA Computer Game Design degree at Newport School of Art, Media, and Design in the UK. Uh, David was also, um, it's probably worth noting, was also a member of the curatorial team on the Games Masters exhibition, uh, and his new game, uh, as was Helen, um, and his new game, Take a Walk, um, launched uh, just last week. So, welcome, David. And finally, we, um, on the panel, we have uh, Lena Van Deventer, who's a freelance word herder. I always really love that description, as you put it in your bio. Um, and game developer um, with a soft spot, as she describes it, for street and pervasive, pervasive design, as well as video game design. Um, she most recently edited the seventh game book in the Game Book Adventure series by Tin Man Games, um, which I'm sure many of you would be familiar with, um, which was the Temple of the Spider God, and is currently working on two more titles. Um, she's also working on an iOS game, uh, for children, um, which uses augmented reality technology. She's also heavily involved in free plays on the programming advisory committee um, this year, and um, last year was an associate producer. And as you heard before, she's also the games correspondent for 3WBC 94.1 FM's Tech Talk Radio. And she's also running uh, the Sim Interrupted blog, which I would advise you all to follow because it's, it's really fascinating, and hopefully we'll get to that um, later this evening. So welcome, Lena. All right, so, and, and I mean, I should also add, of course, that, you know, we have music and um, Pedro Batista, uh, who's going to be talking about his um, incredible collection, which you can see some of, uh, some previews uh, already here on the table here. But, uh, so to lead us into our discussion, uh, we'll, um, we will uh, turn to Helen first. Okay, so it's uh, probably strange to come to something that's about celebrating or exploring game characters and to start with a character who's obviously not a game character. But that is the only time I've died in a video game and been so upset (laughs) that I had to put the controller down. I was physically shaking um, and I had to have a bit of time out. 
before I went back. And um, for those of you who don't recognise it, it's the 2002 Buffy the Vampire Slayer game, which was one of the early Xbox games, actually came out pretty much the same time as the Xbox, um, where you obviously play Buffy. Uh, is there Buffy fans here? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was 2002 was the end of showing, end of season six had shown on television and we're waiting for the final season, season seven. The video game was set at the end of season three, so you're still at the high school, Giles is still in the library, uh, Xander is dating... No, Cordelia, thank you. All I could get was Charisma Carpenter and that wasn't going to do it. Um, so it, but I think it's really interesting the relationship we have with game characters and we have a particular relationship with game characters because we understand how games work. But when I went into the Buffy world and they really, really worked hard on this game to make it feel like valid, the valid as the narrative world of Buffy. It's written by two of the writers who wrote the novels for Buffy. All the voice acting is the actual actors, except for Sarah Michelle Gellar, who was obviously too special. Um, <laughs> and it, it, you really, really feel uh, that you've bought into the Buffy narrative. So when, you know, I, I was my first Xbox game, so the Xbox 360 game, so, and I hadn't had an Xbox. So, um, sorry, my first Xbox game, that was the origins of the Xbox. So uh, I played the, the, the tutorial, I f killed the first few vampires and then that's the first kind of decent monster you meet. And I'm like, oh, controller, what to do, what to do? Because all the buttons are in the wrong place. Um, <laughs> so, so obviously it wasn't my fault, but uh, I failed in my duty of care and um, Buffy gets killed by a measly hellhound. And it was really shocking because, you know, Buffy's meant to be this great vampire slayer and no measly hellhand would take her out. Um, so it's really interesting, that relationship that you have to a character, because I have let much more powerful characters than Buffy die miserable deaths purely by going, what happens if I do this? Ooh, maybe not. <laughs> you know, look. But, um, and I don't care, because they're back and we do it again. Um, and that's how we understand you play games. And, and in fact, um, games are designed around that. And, and one of the things that, and I'm just going to be a little gender specific here, often drives women mad in games is they are based on the notion of exploration. So that instead of knowing how to do all your fight moves, you learn them by trial and error, which means you learn them by failing. Uh, and that's how it, generalisation, how men prefer to learn. Uh, whilst women tend to prefer to learn by show and tell, uh, which is a problem we have with, with games and games tutorials, but that's for another talk. Uh, <laughs> but so you, you really are very used to failing in games and, and, and embracing that as part of the experience. So to die and to let Buffy die was quite a significant event and, and more so than, than any other, more than any game character I've ever played. So... Um, so I think we have an interesting relationship with game characters. I don't think we inhabit their skin in a simple way. I think we always know that they're a game character. And I think they're more than the animated cursor, you know, which is how uh, Gonzalo Frasco describes characters like Mario and, and Sonic the Hedgehog. I think it's more complex than that. And, and also, because my background 
is actually I started off in pen and paper role-playing games. So, you know, I played Dungeons and Dragons and Call of Cthulhu, and yes, I'm that old, uh, and Paranoia. And then computers arrived. Yeah, see. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then I played computer games, um, and they really were animated curses, trust me. <laughs> uh, so when I play role-playing games, I, I play like that legendary 10% of, of players who actually do sort of go, and what would my character do? <laughs> I'm lawful good. Ooh, I get to take the bad decision, you know, uh, because I, I will play true to form. But I will also play uh, the same character, which is like when I set up my character, you know, for World of Warcraft, if I set up my character for Dragon Age, I will choose the same features, you know. And, and they're often really lame. Because <laughs> I always play healers. Yeah, because when I was a kid growing up, that was my role in the, in the group that I played with. I was the cleric healer. Dude. <laughs> so, <Nurturing> you. <laughs> but I will play, and I'll make the healer decision. Yeah. And I and I am a terrible stickler for um, the importance of narrative in in games, even when the games don't care. Like I was complaining that when I played Dragon Age Origins, in Dragon Age Origins, Dragon Age Origins, um, I ha- restarted the final battle constantly until I could finish it with all four characters alive because it didn't have narrative clarity unless you did. Now, I can finish that battle with just the healer character alive, (laughs) (laughs) but it doesn't make any sense to me if everybody else is dead. So, um, So I make my life really hard by the way I play games, and I think that that the way you play our character and the way our character exists for you in a game is all about you. It's all about the stuff that you want, uh, the way that you think about character. Um, you know, and, and, and I think it's like when Dungeons & Dragons, when they made Dungeons & Dragons, they were very, had that kind of, you have a class system and you have an alignment system and, and you go in and you have to play alignment and if you choose to be... People here who play Dungeons and Dragons. Am yes. I just yes? So lawful good or chaotic, or you know, and, and you chaotic have, neutral. Chaotic neutral, yeah. <laughs> Party starts now. Um, uh, and and if you've got a good dungeon master, which sadly we did, we had an excellent dungeon master, who's my brother. Who some of you may even have had dungeon master. You used to win all those prizes at Carnacon um, for you. Uh, <laughs> He, he would make you play <laughs> in the right, you know, if you said that was your alignment, you played that alignment or you were punished. Um, and I have a huge legacy because of that. And I think we, we are trained to play characters in, in different ways. So, so going back to the, um, the Buffy example, mm. so we, I think um, the, the interesting thing there is that what's most shocking about it is your understanding of this character's um, as existing outside of you, um, and and having a pre-existing idea of what they're capable of and what they uh, are capable of as a, as an actor in themselves, um, as separate from you, is, is that 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 sounds like what you're, you're saying? Yeah, look, I think because you will quite happily play any video game and deal with those inconsistencies. Yeah. You know, 
in, in most video games, you, you know nothing, you mm. know, unless you've got Fahrenheit in the amnesia situation. You know, mm. you're, you're busy trying to find out about your own character's life as mm. you play it. We deal with that. You know, uh, you play Zelda and you're on an urgent mission, but you're going to go off and do a little quest over here or do some fishing or whatever, you know, mm. and then back to your urgent mission. And, mm. and, and, and we deal with that because we understand yeah. the, the sort of the flexibility of games and we squish that narrative around to work with the stuff we want to do. Mm. But to be inside somebody else's narrative world mm. um, and then not to be able to live up to my expectations. Yeah. That was the... So it was all about me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, and, and you said this sort of earlier that you don't think people inhabit characters in, in, in perhaps the way that someone else's skin, the, the title implies. Mm. I mean, there's this sort of... Um, or at least there was this sort of feeling that um, maybe um, games might be a, like an ideal utopian medium that can can make people see through another, uh, uh, you know, through walk in another person's shoes and, and get that perspective. I, I think there's something to that. And um, when the Escape from Woomera team right. made the Escape from Woomera mod back in oh, 2003, 2003, I reckon, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 2003, and the idea then, uh, people are aware of the Escape from Woomera mod, it was a mod made in Half-Life Engine by a Melbourne-based team of game developers, commercial game developers, who made it as an art project, uh, but they would have liked to have made it as a real game, um, which took you into Woomera, the, the detention centre. And there was a media blackout on Woomera, so there was no information about um, how people were treated there. And it was a game where you were trying to escape from Woomera and you had a hope meter. And you'd go around and you'd talk to people uh, who were mostly fairly aggressive because they were mostly the guards, and you were trying to accumulate enough items to, to make your escape before your hope meter ran out. Um, and that was, that was exploring this idea mm. of walking in somebody else's shoes, but it was really about engaging people in a space that there was no other way to see mm. at that time. Mm. So. So, so it was more about placing people in a situation than in a character? It was almost like a documentary. It was like giving you mm. a set of information. You weren't, you knew nothing of your character's backstory or anything. So it was basically saying, Woomera is not a holiday camp. It's a detention centre. Right. Um, this is how people are treated there. Mm. This is the resources they have. And, you know. mm. So, yeah. Mm. You didn't have any affinity with your character as an individual. Sure, yeah. sure. Sure, and, and I suppose the interesting thing then is, um, going back once again to Buffy, you, you felt like you had this duty of care yeah. to, to, look, to look after her. To be Buffy. To be Buffy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, that, I mean uh, maybe it's, I mean, it's only like 10 minutes in, I don't want to get into massive controversies so quickly, but, you know, like, there's, there was the recent remarks about Tomb Raider about needing to protect her, right? Yeah. <laughs> but that... Um, Oh, all right, here we go. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> all right. I'm here. <laughs> the, when they went to E3, the E3 things around Lara and in Tomb Raider was they basically showed her uh, cowering. They showed her being humiliated. 
they showed uh, violence being done upon her of a sexualized nature, even though they say it wasn't, but that's what it is. Um, now, when Lara, when Tomb Raider first came out, Lara, that was a, a fun game that was like being Indiana Jones, except you got to be a girl. That was awesome, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, she did a lot of acrobatics and she, she fought and she was cool. Um, and then like, that's what kind of Lara Croft's sort of been built around. She were, had that sort of super sexualization issue, but she also didn't, in a sense, and, you know, they, they kind of, because you could own her. She was a yeah. bit more sexy than super sexualized, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and God knows what they're thinking. I mean, it's not like they haven't listened to any of their players or looked at any of what their fan community say, because the pleasures of being Lara are not the pleasures of protecting a potential right. rape victim. Mm. And, you know, if you said to somebody, well, in the next Uncharted, because we want you to care more about Nathan, um, he's been in a prison and he's been abused and raped. <laughs> it, it's not going to sell, you know, yeah. with players. That's not why you enjoy Nathan and it's not why you enjoy... Yeah. Thank you. It's uh, <laughs> not why you enjoy Lara. Mm. Mm. And it's a huge misnomer, I think. Mm. I think, I think uh, game developers are looking at torture porn cinema revenues yeah. from series like Saw yeah. and the ability to roll out a very um, specific vision for a set of characters year after year after year and, and build an audience that comes specifically for that. And to be honest, the, um, the Tomb Raider IP had been so run into the ground and, and diluted and reworked and so on that actually, you know, you could just buy it and rework it in this way. At least that's the commercial assumption. What you're dealing with is a huge pl player base that go, hey, wait a second, you know, kind of like the Transformer movies. It's like, hey, wait a second. <laughs> you know? We've been with you a long time. Yeah. And we've never talked about this. Yeah. You know, and then if they wanted to make that game, you know, if mm. they want to make a rape revenge game, well, mm. buy the rights to I Spit on Your Grave. You know? Yeah. 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 It was, she always had that, that mix of not being helpless but still being sexy. Mm -hmm. And to me, I don't find that offensive. When you put helpless and, and sexualised or sexy together, that's when I start going, ugh, really? Can <laughs> yeah. we not? Like, and, and that's what they've sort of done that's sort of annoyed me so far, mm. is that they've, they've mixed around that, those two things in the, the way that doesn't please yeah. me too much. I think, I think the core thing, aside from the controversial aspects for me, is that it just misunderstands what Tomb Raider is. Like, mm. if, you know, in Tomb Raider, you're swan diving over lava flows and shooting Siberian tigers. tigers yeah. You know, tigers. it's like, you know, it is like mm. kitsch, yeah. Yeah. silly... It's Acrobatic rock. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. And, and bringing it to that level, you know, it's... Mm. I was filled with hope with that Game Informer cover when that came out and we saw sort of the new Lara and everyone went oh my god they're taking out the sexy and she's still not helpless right. but then they went and we're just going to put a little bit of helplessness in there just to ease the transition a little bit and everyone kind of went oh okay she's not she's not what the game informer cover told me she was going to be and you know what I mean like yeah, that, yeah. that but that's probably me reading into it too much I think I think one of the key problems with, with Tomb Raider as well is that the in, within the IP there isn't a, a clearly defined enemy 
mm. um, to counterbalance her. You just have this kind of sea of faceless male sort of antagonists. And tigers. And tigers and <laughs> giant gorillas and robots, you know. Yeah. So she needs a female nemesis is what you're saying. Well, no. We can get them on the phone. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. women hate each other. <laughs> but I think yeah. like the films the films actually realize like in the translation of the game to film they realize that. It's like this doesn't right. work. Right. Mm. Yeah. You know, mm. like we need to balance this character with some kind of skilled Ultimately mm. respectful, if not kind of malevolent, other. Yeah, yeah. And the games have never fully kind of committed to that. Right. So, mm. yeah. Well, on that note, um, we uh, may move the discussion along and we'll um, cut to a, another uh, tune by Dot AY and we'll be back in uh, just a moment. What a perfect segue into talking about visual style. <laughs> uh, 
Wow. <laughs> so I can give you some context. Please <laughs> do, yeah. <clears throat> so, um, so after the after the Second World War in Japan, there was like obviously an economic, like major economic crisis happening, and what the Japanese government did was um, set up um, this uh, network of tourist um, kind of, of of tourism uh, centers in each kind of province across Japan, and those tourism centers were tasked with basically like promoting that region for a particular thing. Mm. So it's like, hey, you're in Hokkaido, like, come and get the best radish soup or, like, mm. buy the best, like, you know, cotton buds here or, like, <laughs> you can get the best, like, bells or something right. like that. Like, each, each location had this whole... This, um, had this uh, focus. And um, over the years, that, those um, kind of post-war um, traditions that were kind of embedded in each area became um, so much part of the identity of the various regions of Japan that you ended up with characters being created to kind of like symbolize those things. And so what this is, this, those videos are from the um, Yurukiara um, festival in Shibuya in Tokyo, which is basically a festival to kind of celebrate those characters. And what's interesting is that um, Yuru Kiara kind of roughly translates to kind of like soft characters or weak characters. And part of the pleasure of those characters is that they're a little bit crap. And like a little, <laughs> like they're a little bit one note, you know. Right. It's like, hey, I'm a radish, right. <laughs> like you know. And and when so my so my my background is in animation originally, coming to games design, and I always loved slightly shitty characters, <laughs> like. In the, growing up in the UK, when you're a kid watching like cheap Super Japanese Ted. stuff, cheap British stuff like Super, Super Ted. Ted, you know, old 70s stuff. Like, I like the way in which people don't need a lot to yeah. kind of like imaginatively project into a character. Mm. They just need it to have the, a kind of minimum of it has to have a smiley face. You know, it has to mm. roughly kind of you know, adhere to certain values. And, like, for me, looking at animation, particularly over the past, like, 15 years, and looking at games over the same amount of time, we've got to this point where, like, character design is this insanely, like, overcooked, overwrought kind of uh, process where you kind of, like, add minutiae of detail. You, you know, you, you read these, like character design guides, these books and stuff, and it's like, oh, make sure your character has a minimum of five props. Right. They should have a hat, and they should have a backstory, and they should have a special weapon, and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And it's like, we've got this rule set now for what constitutes um, acceptable game character design. Mm. And so I wanted to show that, really, because um, in Japan, there's a festival for basically shit characters. Mm. And I think that's, like, yeah. a really... It has a powerful message at the core of it, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, and it's amazing to see the, the kinds of differentiation you can therefore get between mm. characters and, and how individual they can all seem yeah. with the masses on the stage. Mm. You know, they all look mm. different. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like we don't really we don't really have a language for how to critique character design, at least not in the in the public sphere. Mm. Like game designers and game artists and animators on illustrators, they there's a there's a production language for how to critique characters, but like um, really you're dealing with um, particularly in the case of these characters, just like is it popular or not? You know, like the the um, the cat with the samurai helmet, who's called Hino Nyan, because mm -hmm. she's he's associated with like um, the Hikone Castle in Tokyo. Like that character was hated for years, and they just pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. And people were like, "Oh, we hate this character," so they made commercials where he's really lonely and everyone hates it. <laughs> <laughs> and then like they kept pushing it more and more and more. And then finally, people are like, okay, like after 10 years, they, like, yeah. they're into him. And I think, like, character design is interesting from the point of view of being an artist, in that you put something out into the world, and people are willing to give it a very raw form of immediate feedback. Yeah. They say, like, it works or it doesn't work. And, like, when I used to teach character design in the UK, that was the criteria for me. It's like, get the whole room to say, like, does it work or doesn't it work? You know, and if you can articulate how it works and how it doesn't work, then you can, get, you can start to improve it and refine mm. it, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, you, you, I mean it's, it, <clears throat> I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, you, you have a, a really interesting perspective for this, this group of, of sort of a, a practice um, of um, designing characters. Um, I mean, is that, that feedback, that, that's obviously not the very first point. How, how do you go about... Um, I think, like, so... Character design, like, like whenever you read these like books, mm. particularly like the focal press, like how to design characters, how to design yep. characters for video games and stuff like that, like the idea that there are hard and fast rules about these things, mm. like de like designing characters is like cooking. It's mm. like when you go and buy dumplings, you know, you just want a good familiar experience, right. and there's lots of character design where you just want the few things that make up that character to be delivered really, really well. So mm. like Pikachu from Pokemon is a super mm. simple graphic statement. And if it's off even slightly, mm. you, your eye can pick it up immediately because the, the few criteria that make up that character um, need to stay incredibly consistent. Whereas mm. like Marcus Phoenix in Gears of War, which is this incredibly over-the-top, elaborate character design with all these different motifs to it, they could change huge amounts of, about that character and you would still buy it because right. those, um, those variables can be played with, those, those mm. traits can be played with. Mm. And so when you're creating characters for games, that's the kind of assessment you need to make, really. Mm. Like... Am I making a kind of impactful single statement? Mm. Or am I creating something nuanced and layered that needs to be looked at for hundreds of hours mm. by the player base who needs to be put in changing circumstances and have props or assets that make up the character change over time? Mm. So you're, it's like, am I going to have dumplings or am I going to have crazy, you know, like Mapo tofu or something? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, right, right. Yeah, and and I mean it, um, the the really the thing that really draws that out um, uh, in terms of what you're saying about the simplicity of, of Pokemon is um, how important the silhouette yep. is. 
So silhouette, like silhouette, is everything in in animation and in character design for games as well, because it's through silhouette you your eye um, identifies the character. Like um, the human eye can pick up the out the, the shape of something faster than it can pick up color nuance or line detail or any of that interior mm. stuff, and um, Therefore, the silhouette is the thing that you are refining first. It's like, does this have an interesting silhouette? Like, when I look at this character, am I going to be able to um, look at it a million different times in a million different contexts and, and immediately know who it is? And that's why, you know, characters like Sonic and Mario, the reason they succeeded, whereas, like, Bubsy the Bobcat, you know, didn't sure. succeed... Because, <laughs> you know, or even Rayman historically, right. like when you go back to the Sega Saturn PlayStation versions, you know, the reason those ca these characters succeed is because their silhouette is so distinctive. Mm. And particularly in the case of the 16-bit games, when you're dealing with the tile sets of 16-bit era games, which were so square, which mm. compressed silhouette down mm. to these very compact characters. You know, Sonic and Mario really stand out for the way in which they're composed, mm. you know? So silhouette, silhouette is hugely important when it comes to character design. I mean, the other key thing in video games, particularly contemporary um, 3D virtual world video games, um, is that the character can be in the immediate foreground, it can be in the distance. Mm. If it's an enemy player character, it can be you know, just turning a corner at the very end of the draw distance of the game. Mm. And at that point, you need to know who, who that character is. You know, mm. Doom is a really good example of a game which uses silhouette to mm. um, give you very precise um, choices. Mm. So, you know, you're like, oh, I'm killing imps, and I can just use my handgun because they're weak, turn a corner, and there's the ogre. Yeah. And it's like, shit, I need a shotgun, I need a minigun, because yeah. that yeah. thing isn't going down quickly. Yeah. And you're making those choices based on that super familiar silhouette which is burnt into your brain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And, I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, draw distance and the, 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 the sort of the, um, the way that 8-bit... Um, uh, graphics sort of compact the silhouette. I mean, how, how much of a role does technology have in shaping the way that these characters are, are, are represented? Well, it's, it's, it's like a twofold thing because, you know, the, the visual complexity of end of 16-bit era games, mm. you know, games like Alien Soldier by Treasure, for instance, um, which, you know, come out around 1995... The sophistication of those games in terms of the visual literacy that they achieve has only recently been matched by mm. um, subsequent consoles. Mm. Like, when you, when you made the jump to even Tomb Raider, you know, and, mm. and those games, in terms of, like, complexity, you know, in level one of Tomb Raider, there's, like, seven walls right. in the whole level. Mm. You know, it's in terms of reducing the amount of information. Like the other day, I posted on Facebook the um, a long play of Aladdin on the on the Genesis mm. on the Mega Drive, and like you're suddenly hit by the complexity. You're like, oh my god, this is doing so much in mm. such a dense way. And so, technology is interesting in the sense that one of the 
long-term projects of games journalism is to sell this idea of a continual improvement, mm. that games are getting better, players are getting more sophisticated, and, and that everything is in this kind of ascent toward a, a bigger and better medium. Yeah. But actually, when you look at game complexity and game density, what happens with each tech generation is that the complexity, ta complexity takes a massive hit, mm. and that end of 16-bit era games on the Super Nintendo and Mega Drive have much more complexity than, than launch games in the, mm. the 32-bit era. So the, the complexity actually plummets and then mm. has to build back up again. And hopefully, in the process of doing that, acquire new qualities relevant to that era of technology. Mm. So it's, I think um, t technology has this kind of very um, um, capricious relationship to design, you know, mm. in the sense that it delivers this potential, but then it also takes away the knowledge base that's been built up within the system. Mm. The thing that's interesting nowadays with SDKs like PlayStation's PSM mm. um, software development, and SDK is the, is the software you use to build a video game, um, is that they're now standardizing that across their hardware, so like mm. you, that, you don't take that hit with each subsequent generation. Right. right. Yeah. Well, um, on that note, um, we might uh, throw once again to dot .ay uh, for another tune.
So, Lena, um, word herder, <laughs> let's talk yeah. about perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you use uh, a different kind of first person perspective in, I do. In, in, in your writing for, for game books, for example. Mm -hmm. um, what, what's that like for, in terms of getting in uh, someone else's skin? Um, I find it's something that's actually really fun writing in the first person, so instead of, instead of sort of any sort of novel writing that I'd done in the past was then they went over here, then they went over here. It was sure, a, a narrator sure. saying everything. And, and in game books, it's you are going over here and you are doing this and you can't have a narrator um, mm. until my next game book where I kind of break game books a little bit. Um, <laughs> and I have put a narrator in there. Um, mm. But it, I like playing around with that, um, the ability to have it straight away it's you there's no mm. questions asked you don't get to decide whether it's you or not it's you and, it, mm. and this is what's happening and these are your decisions that you're making and um, you get a little bit of say in it but not necessarily a lot like um, I try and make a conscious effort not to have a case of the LA Noirs which is what I've written, <laughs> <laughs> written it down as in the past as like if, if anyone's, anyone's played it you could doubt Mm. Um, and I always thought doubt was just like maybe pushing for a little bit more info or not, right. but it's not. He just accuses them flat out of murdering someone, <laughs> right, and you, right. kind of, you kind of go, hang on a minute, I didn't want you to do that. So yeah, that, yeah. that disconnect is what I try and really, really avoid. Right. I really don't want that in game books. I want to be able to say, here's the situation, um, you can do this or this. Mm. Um, which one do you want to choose? And then hopefully you understand when you're choosing that what the reaction's going to be, mm. or take it the complete opposite and say, would you like to take the moral approach or would you like to take right. the, you know, be really vague and ambiguous <laughs> yeah. and then have them, uh, have it sort of be a reveal, like a surprise yeah. of what the actual thing is going to be. But I really, I really like, as a writer, exploring that and, mm. and playing around a bit with that because I'd never done any creative writing in, that, in first person mm. before I started playing around with the game books. Um, mm. I actually didn't really like it very much. <laughs> From uh, like, I liked my Choose Your Own Adventure books, and I liked, I liked them, but that was the only place that existed for me, the first-person yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was really fun to sort of look at it from that, that creative aspect. Yeah, because it is a really unusual voice, isn't it? It's really odd, and yeah. it's, it's, it, you, people get really annoyed if you don't do it right. Like, right. they get really mad because they're saying, well, I wouldn't do that. Right. Like, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's supposed to be you. And, yeah. And it's, um, like... Um, I'll use Spider God as an example. I didn't write that. I edited that one. But um, as an example of that, you're this traveller, warrior mm. kind of guy, and that's just a given. You know, mm. you don't have much, much say in that. Um, so you make travelly, warrior-ish decisions, you know, that kind <laughs> of, you know, right. um, just being, being a brute is sort of a given. Um, mm. One of the game books that I'm writing at the moment uh, is from a female perspective, and a high school female at that, and mm. as a high schooler in a foreign environment as well, right. Um, right. In, a, in a land where etiquette is a really big deal. Probably don't need to say much more than that, but um, <laughs> <laughs> etiquette's a really big deal. She has none. Yeah. Uh, hilarity ensues. <laughs> um, but it's, it's that sort of um, putting... It, none of us are really warriors or travellers, mm. but we've all been to high school. So I'm really aware of 
putting yourself back in high school and, and all, the, all the minefields that are going to be around yeah. for terms of, of how you're going to deal with the conflicts that are in high schools and, and the, all the stuff that goes with that. Um, yeah, it's, mm. it's a challenge, but it's a fun, really invigorating challenge mm. because I don't want to do game, game writing as therapy, but there's a little <laughs> bit of that in there and you can't really help it. Um, you can always write in a character that was mm. that person at school you hated and then <laughs> kill them off. But like, it's, it's that, kind of, um, that kind of freedom that I, I, really, I really dig. Yeah. yeah. And so it's this interesting um, line between creating a, a, a character as something that exists previously, uh, as we were sort of speaking about yeah. earlier, mm. and how much the player can put in themselves. See, I, I'm one of the few people that, that unashamedly loves L.A. Noir. I love... Um, I feel like I'm in control of um, Phelps, the detective, like I'm in control of one of the cars. Until like control I... was taken away from No, exactly, but you know, like the cars don't steer very well. No. Like you go around the corner and you slip and slide, and that's what I feel like with Cole Phelps as the yeah. detective. I, I really like that, like he's fighting yeah. back. But, yeah, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say that Amanda Toysi, who was the lead cinematic designer mm-hmm. on Mass Effect 2, he talks about the fact how... They had to foreshadow things that, you know, when you choose on that um, dial yeah. about what your character is going to say, and that might trigger a quick time event where the character shoots somebody or something, and you go, I didn't mean that. So they had to um, try and put a tell yeah. that the action would be violent or the action would be passive mm. in because people were exactly what you were saying, going, that's not what I meant to do. I wouldn't yeah. do that. Mm. So that <laughs> when, they really when, had to work hard at yeah. that. Absolutely. When you're jumping into someone else's skin for escapism, mm. you don't really care. Right. But when you're jumping into someone else's skin and they're a reflection of you and they're relatable to you and mm. you, all of a sudden you've got them right here, like Buffy was right here for you. Yeah. And it's, it's that kind of, you know, then you really care about, about the, the decisions they make and you're really invested. Mm. Um, but the problem is you can't write something to say this will be for escapism right? because right. it's what the, the player sits down and does with it that mm. decides that. So it's, it's mm. tricky in that, in that sense. I don't think you can ever please everyone yeah. um, as much. And too much foreshadowing is, is, yeah, just, is, is going to annoy a whole other dr- section drama. of people. Yeah. Yeah, mm. so it's, and L.A. Noire felt that a little bit too. Like the sus ones always went like this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it was kind of yeah. like, okay, you're a bit sus. But... <laughs> You know, so foreshadowing is great, but it yeah. also, yeah. like, the, it's, it's a tightrope because you don't really know who's going to sit down for what reason to play your game. So yeah. it's, you know, and especially with, with game books, it's a real, on the whole, an escapism thing. Yeah. But by the same token, people love those characters. People have a real personal connection with it, especially because mm-hmm. a lot of us read fighting fantasy and, and choose your own adventure in our childhoods as well. Yeah. So when you put mm-hmm. nostalgia in there as well, it's like <laughs> I'm extra invested in in this thing and if you mess with it I'm going to be really mad yeah. um, so it's yeah dealing with other people's IP is, is very difficult as well absolutely yeah so, so also um, writing and, and playing as um, women characters mm-hmm. is, is something that's quite interesting because I mean um, you know you, you were saying earlier um, beforehand that you know you have this sort of like you, you want to be able to put yourself into them but equally you want them to be like a strong character yeah, I wonder if you're better than what me. What are you I mean, saying about No, sorry, no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> These are Lena's words, I'm sorry. A video game about me would be dead boring, but right. like, I, I do want it to be a bit more exciting, a bit more, you know, a bit more fun. But yeah, um, yeah it, it all depended on, like, growing up with our sort of lack of strong female characters, whatever that yeah. means, um, to sort of have that... I did play for escapism mostly, so yeah. I didn't find it 
too much of an issue. It didn't turn me away from gaming altogether because there wasn't someone like me. Right. Um, but having said that, there were times when I saw someone who was a little bit like me, mm. but really, I really didn't like what they did with it, and that pissed me off. And right. so that, I went... Or we just went straight to playing boy characters again because then that's just straight escapism and I'm not invested, it doesn't matter. Um, but with more and more female characters coming in, I am finding I don't just game to escape anymore. I do, I do game because I'm invested and I care. Mm. Which, and because I'm being represented more now. Mm. So it's, it's, um, it does change the way that I sit down and play a game, which yeah. I wasn't really expecting. I thought, mm. you know, once you have a style of gaming, that's pretty much it, right? Right. It's, yeah, but... That does change and evolve as, as the characters get better. Mm. So I, I guess then the question comes down to how much is the character there and how much do you bring to the character? Mm. And actually that's um, really neatly or interestingly um, uh, played out in, in your Sim Interrupted um, ah. project, right? <laughs> so so it's, it, um, for, for those of you who are unaware of it, it's where you've, you've sort of set up this situation, these lives for these characters and you're seeing how they play out, plays into themes of depression maybe if you can... Yeah, it's, yeah. it's sort of um, mental illness isn't really covered very much in video games um, and if it is, it's always like post-traumatic stress, if you'd seen the shit I'd seen you'd be like this too, kind of <laughs> um, hardened war veteran, kind of um, you know battled and, and, and battle-weary and all that um, and I, and or it was in the survival horror genre and right. that's about it yeah. um, so there's not, and I get it, a, a game about depre- depression wouldn't be sexy. Like, t- Tommy can't get out of bed today, the end. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I, get, I get that it's, it's, not as, it's not as sexy as, as the Michael Bay kind of explosion and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I wanted a game to sort of, like, The Sims uh, rewards you for um, granting the life aspirations of the, of the characters that you're playing, The Sims you've made, um, and you have to grind a fair bit to get there. So you've mm-hmm. got to do a fair bit of work and invest a lot into these little people. And um, I'm not supposed to call them people. Little AI balls. <laughs> um, and, and to try and, and make them have their life aspiration. Um, but I wanted to know what creative decisions Maxis had, had made to see what happens to them when they don't make those life aspirations. Um, mm. I'd always being the grindy person who always gave them exactly what they wanted the whole time I played The Sims, so I was really curious myself as to what, what happens um, if they don't get those things that they wanted. And I wanted to see how depression is... is you know, the creative decisions that they'd made to, on how they were going to show depression, and mm. not only that, but how they were different in the, in the, in the genders. Right. So, um, and there has been a massive difference <laughs> between the two of them already. It's only, I've only done one sim of each gender, mm. and I understand that's a small sample size, and there's probably a randomization thing in there, and I'll have to do a thousand more sims to really make a proper comparison. So I used to call it a little social experiment, but that right. has way too much responsibility, so I'm just going to say it's just a little <laughs> fun thing that I'm doing to try and see what it's like. Mm. But um, that's, yeah, that, that's pretty much what, what Sim Interrupted is, but it, mm. it has... I have found myself as a, as a writer prone to daydreaming and imagination, um, started to put little personality traits in these people right. that might not necessarily have been there before. Like Amy is um, hopeless. She likes to stare out the window a lot. Um, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> she will spend most of the day staring out the window. She'll walk past the TV, grump, look grumpily at it and go and look out the window instead. Um, and as she got more and more depressed... Um, 
this started seeming a bit more sad. This <laughs> like mm. I kept watching her and going, "Oh, lady, can you just shower? Like go do <laughs> go do something and don't be so don't don't be longingly looking out the window." It was it was so poignantly sad. I kept it, kept waiting for her to put her hand on it. Like <laughs> just to sort of gaze at the people like people were walking their dogs out the window and she'd just be sort of Staring out there, and, and and there was a door in the house, wasn't there? There was a door, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not torturing them; I'm just not grinding. Um, but yeah, it, it that sort of has made me realise how much I read into things. Right. Like she was just programmed to just look at something interesting, right? Right. So, but I see that as she's looking at the outside world and all the things she can't have, and oh my god, and, you yeah. know, because yeah. because she's unhappy already. Yeah. Um, and and Ted wet himself. Um, <laughs> so it's it's that sort of that sort of thing where you look at how much you bring to the character, mm. and you have to be aware of that. Especially when I'm writing about it in in the blog, I've got to try and not put too much yeah. interpretation in there. But I do I do like doing it, and I mm. think I think it's fun. But they are just little balls of AI that are programmed to do yeah. certain things, and I've got to sort of. But isn't that the point? In a yeah. sense that they're designed, so you put lots of interpretation mm. over exactly. the top of them. I mean, that's the the magic of the Sims. Yeah. Is they're they're all completely open mm. to yeah, and your they do things narrative. I never thought they'd be yeah. capable of doing. You know, because you play a certain way. You play the way you think you're supposed to play, which is give them what they want, feed them, clothe them, maybe kill one in a pool if you're having a bad day. But <laughs> like, and it's that that sort of um, maybe I'm not a psycho. Um, but yeah, and and you sort of. Once you step away from what you're supposed to do, it seems like there are a whole different, a whole different world of, of stuff in there. Like mm. if, if there's um, Alice and Kev, have you heard about Alice yeah. and Kev? The, the homeless, yeah, the homeless Sims. Someone set up a blog a couple of years ago. I think it was, it was a fair while ago now. I think when Sims 3 first came out, um, and they made the father have all these character traits. Um, Kevin was the, the father. He was inappropriate. Uh, what was he? He was overweight. Something else. Something else. Something else. He was just a horrible, horrible man. Um, and the daughter was a teenager or a, oh, a little bit younger than a teenager, She's I think. about 14, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And she had a teddy bear. Um, and so the person set up the, the house and everything, but then took the house away. So they had this block, and they had to just fend for themselves. And it's all about how the, the father would... Um, crack onto his his daughter. Oh my god! Because no, he's inappropriate. Crack onto his, he never cracked onto his daughter. <laughs> no, didn't he? Oh, no, but he cracked onto a lot of people. To a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he would he would crack onto people because he's inappropriate, and then he would get daughter would break into people's houses. Yeah, to sleep, sleep. In beds. or to shower. Oh like she would break into people's houses to have a shower. Yeah. Like That's you know, right. and and to, she'd go to the to the to their fridge and get ice cream. Mm. And it's like. If you if you really looked into that about how yeah. how that's a, a look into the the absolute bleakness mm. of of homelessness, mm. um, that's something I think not even the people making The Sims could have thought mm. someone would do with it mm. until because it's the character that's sort of emerging from um, like the algorithm of the game, right? The code, the, yeah. the systems, the process. Well, that's the thing. Are there yeah. creative decisions in place that where they thought about these things, yeah. or are they not? I think that's that's really fascinating because you do you do project a lot yeah. onto those little. Do you not think The Sims is bleak at both ends of the play spectrum? It's like, <laughs> no, at no play it's bleak. And when it's like, hey, Sims medieval Happy Botox capitalist. party, yeah. like, <laughs> I'm turning up in a limo. <laughs> like, you know. Still like, a bit bleak. <laughs> yeah, still a bit bleak. I've got heaps of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah even, even when you do probably grind your way to the absolute top and the best those characters can get, 
Mm. They probably still stare out the window. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I did the Sims, Sims 2, I named everyone after T.S. Eliot. <laughs> <laughs> the Hollow Man was not a happy house, and, and <laughs> Proof Rock was not a big success with the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. Um, yeah, so it, it, maybe, maybe it's all Max is saying that money can't buy your happiness and all that. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, on that note, um, while we um, get uh, Pedro up to talk about um, his amazing collection, we might throw um, one last time to Dot .ay for a song. Perfect. <laughs> cool. So, um, I'd like to welcome um, Pedro Batista to the stage. Um, and so, um, Pedro, you've, you've been a gaming enthusiast since the 80s. Um, yes. You've um, been collecting for 16 years. Yes, yeah, started when I could afford most of the systems yep. 16 years ago, but more predominantly the past eight years. Yeah, right. So, and in the, the past eight years, you uh, established Australia's National Centre of Electronics? Uh, no, the whole purpose of uh, my collection. So, if you've been to Gallery One, if you go downstairs where the arcades are, there's a three tier uh, shelf or display case. Uh, from the centre to the left, that's a small portion of my retro collection that I contributed to the Game Masters exhibition. Hmm. Um, but I'm also a uh, Nintendo historian. Yeah. Um, in the history of before they got into video games, I have a decent collection of uh, their history, as well as the 80s pop culture of uh, Super Mario Brothers and anything Nintendo, really. But yeah. I just bought a small portion, 
portion for today because you asked a collector to choose some items. It took me two hours just to think what would be unique for everyone else to come and see. But yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so I brought a few items along um, and anything you'd actually like to ask. Um, more than well. well, can I have that? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, just to start off, really, this is the first example and the very first style from 1988. It's brand new, hasn't been used or played with. Um, see, the merchandise for Nintendo or Super Mario Brothers didn't really start till 1988, um, following the success of Super Mario Brothers 2. So this, for the Western uh, society, this was the first doll produced for the public. And then in 89, that's one of the uh, collector banks, unused, <laughs> but for display purposes. Um, so a lot of the merchants started in uh, 1988. There was no previous um, merchandise before it. There only was in 1982 made by Coleco, who made uh, the first arcade figures for Donkey Kong, which mm. Mario was known as Jumpman um, before he became known as Mario. But before uh, he became Mario, he went from Jumpman in 1981 uh, with Donkey Kong, and then he became Mr. Video Game in... Uh, as just a name, as they're trying to find a diverse name that would um, give them a broader range of different types of games, but one name that would associate with that all. And we're glad that he chose Mario instead of uh, Mr. Video Game, <laughs> very <laughs> 80s. But, <laughs> so, but you know, uh, one thing, Mario almost ceased to exist because when Nintendo tried to break into the arcade market, uh, Shigeru Miyamoto was... Uh, was under the guidance of a legendary innovator known as uh, Gunpei Yokoi. Now, when they took these excess arcade machines called Radar Scope back in the 80s, because uh, they weren't doing very successful, they asked a young programmer, Shigeru Miyamoto, to come up with a new game reprogramming these systems. Now, we know it as Donkey Kong, but the original story was when, when he was approached to make the game, he had no characters. It was actually a pitched game for Popeye the Sailor Man. So that was the initial game, was to be Popeye the Sailor Man. But because they couldn't come up with the licensing agreement for Popeye the Sailor Man, so you had Bluto, uh, Olive, and uh, Popeye, of course. So because they didn't get the license, they put it on uh, Shigeru Miyamoto to come up with characters. So Bluto from Popeye became Donkey Kong, which was supposed to be King Kong, but they couldn't get the license again, so they called him... <laughs> So they thought of a different name, so they called him Donkey Kong. And then instead of Olive, they put uh, the lady on the top is named Pauline. She became Pauline as you had to try and rescue her from Donkey Kong. And the one that replaced Popeye was Jumpman, which now, you know, went into becoming his own game in 1983. Had his first game of uh, Mario Brothers. You pretty much know that simple platform game. And from there on, they saw that the idea, the concept for the character was great. And they gave him its own game back in 1985, I think, was the very first Super Mario Brothers game, mm -hmm. which became an international success. And why I became a gamer is because of that game. Because I was seven, eight years old, so when I was exposed to that game, it was, I had that emotional connection because I've never experienced that journey as a child. So as it evolved through Super Mario 1, Super Mario 2, I grew up with all those characters, loving the platform game and the journey, and the sense of achievement that you got when you save the princess after eight, nine worlds, <laughs> you finally get there. <laughs> so I, I've always had this um, 
emotional connection with these characters because for me it's like a lot of our characters is that we have this connection is like a song uh, when you're on the radio you hear a song it reminds you of a point in time where you were back in high school primary school or a bad day at work you will remember that connection with that song video game characters are exactly the same thing when you play a certain game or you get older it will remind you of a sense of accomplishment achievement a story a, a frustrating period with whether it's Buffy the Vampire Slayer or um, Tomb Raider or Yuji Naka's Sonic the Hedgehog which is a beloved character but in the past years the reason why it hasn't been so successful is they've gone in so many different directions it lost that connection with the people that loved it from the beginning it sort of lost its audience bit by bit until it uh, and still it's recreated the same sort of nostalgic way <coughs> you resonated when it first was created back in, I think it was 1990, 91, I think. So I started collecting, became a gamer, mainly because of the first Nintendo system. Like, I was introduced to it with the Atari, but I didn't really become the gamer I am today and the collector (laughs) until I was exposed to pretty much a lot of the Nintendo franchises. So for today, I bought a few extra things because of the merchandise I find it uh, unique, and the reason why I collect is that it gives you a, a past history and there's a sense of discovery of what was back in the 80s, and a lot of what we know now as innovative were just a redesign of past ideas uh, and so forth. So I, I brought, this is a 1989, just a, a normal watch made by Nelsonic, licensed by Nintendo, and you flip it up and it told you the time. But they went on from that and started to make it more interactive. So what I brought along is the very first Mario Brothers of the Nelsonic brand. Now, if you want to know, I have the entire set of all the watches that were released by Nelsonic <laughs> under the Nintendo banner. Of course you do. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so this it shows it went from 1989 and then... From 1990 to, uh, on to 95, they made interactive watches where it was just a brief experience, but you had it in your, in your watch and it was a um, Game & Watch before Nintendo. Because Nintendo started making Game & Watch in 1980 with the silver, uh, silver edition, I think you would call it. And um, went on all the way making it until 91, 93, I think was the last time Nintendo made a Game & Watch. But now Sonic carried it on, uh, still doing wristwatches, but with interactive experience. Um, and, you know, the fascinating thing about this, it's not just I collect for my own personal thing, but the intention is also for a lot of what I collect and all this memorabilia and the history is to give the public a chance to, to either appreciate or be fascinated by what they might not have the means or interests, but someone like me who's a fanatic, <laughs> I, I hope to give you that experience. So I hope you find it intriguing. Um, I also have a very, one unique item that most people will not know. So you know that Nintendo made Game & Watch from 1980 to about 91, 93. But in 1987, um, Nintendo ran a competition for the Formula One Grand Prix in Japan. Now, this was to promote the Famicom disc system. I don't know if anyone is familiar with the Famicom disc system. Well, in 1987... They did the promotional. They made 10,000 prizes. Now, this consisted of games, stationery, and gold cartridges. Now, I have pretty much... This is what you would have got in 1987 if you were a winner of the Formula One Grand Prix in Japan. It is 
uh, one of the rarest Game & Watch you can get. It was never up for sale. Um, it retails, you know, from without the gift box and all this, that's from $1,000 to $5,000 in collector value. Now, this is brand new from 1987. This is the gift box that Nintendo would present to the child or adult. And this was the icon for the early 80s. Now, this is the character name as Disc-Kun, which is the promotional character for the Famicom. And what was inside was you open up and you would have a very special limited edition Game & Watch of Super Mario Brothers, of course, which is the main character of all. And this is brand new, unplayed with. I'll only play it whenever I establish the National Center for Electronic Games, and whenever that happens, I'll play it. <laughs> but until then, I won't touch it. I mean, I'll touch it, but I won't play it. But there was 10,000. Now, you didn't know what you were going to get back in 1987. Now, it could have been the Game and uh, Watch, or a stationary set, or a gold cartridge, which I think was Mario T Golf, I think was the golden cartridge that you could get, but using the same case. So you have 1987, that's the gift box. That's the case with the game itself. And I also have, this is the, the official congratulations letter in Japanese, uh, stating congratulations, you have won your prize from Nintendo and so on, but... I don't know how well your Japanese is, but I can't speak it. But I should be in such a fanatic of uh, Nintendo and video games in general. But, in, you know, there's a, a, there's a lot of unique items, and I do have a lot more, and I hope to show it to you at some stage in my life, but I hate to keep this stuff in, in storage. But, you know, it's this emotional connection as a child where I saw these items, and, see, I didn't have the ability to own these items, it's through passion and then knowing. And I said, when the day I can afford to get this stuff, I'll get it. Well, as I grew and every bit of money that I could get, I spent it all on this. You maybe call me crazy and so on, but, you know, I find it fascinating. And it's unique to the, not just to the characters and video games, but the culture in general and, you know, where it branched out. In, it still was an interactive item, um, given the watch. Um, but also, they also got into comics. So there's many stories of Super Mario Brothers. You know the games and so on. But they also branched into comics. So I brought, not all the comics, but I thought I, thought I bought, right. This is uh, issue number one of um, Nintendo's comic system uh, license by, and it was done by Valiant Comics. Uh, this is yeah, virtually brand new. <laughs> As most of my items are, because they, at some stage they're all going to be for display purposes. They're not going to be for, uh, for me flipping around and toying with them, increasing up the pages. Uh, they're better preserved for everyone's eye, untouched and damaged. And at some point I'll probably scan it so it gives people the opportunity to read it, other than just to stare at a piece of uh, paper. Can that, <laughs> that, That's amazing. Thank you so much, Pedro. So I think we have... Um, uh, eight minutes, nine minutes for questions. Um, there should be some microphones somewhere, I hope. Is there? Uh, yeah, cool. So if, uh, if you could just put up your hand, we can uh, go through a couple, hopefully, for, for anyone on the panel. Um, we talked about a lot of different characters uh, today, but one of the things that I find interesting about how much you inhabit a character and how much you identify with it and love it is the way in which you inhabit it physically. So you have characters that are presented to you in the third person, 
you have uh, literary sort of second person of, of the choose your own adventure style game book, but you also have that first person adventure where the character famously has no face, no voice, and Sci-fi. it's like you know you're seeing what you would see out of your eyes if you were in that situation. I'm just interested in the, if you think that that really does make you inhabit the character more than if you experience characters in a more traditional cinematic way where you see them on the screen. I do like an empty shell. Um, people use um, Chell from Portal as an example of a strong female character sometimes and I, I, I find that weird because she's just an empty shell. We don't know anything about her. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't, you know, she, she's not um, necessarily a bad female character or anything like that. She's certainly not sexualized. She's certainly not anything like that. So I think that's the point they're making is we didn't totally screw it up with that one. Um, <laughs> but... You know, um, Gordon Freeman doesn't speak either and you wouldn't say that he's necessarily weak. So I do like an empty shell and I think I got used to liking an empty shell because I wasn't being catered for very much, as we were saying before. Um, so I'm, I'm totally cool with an empty shell. I actually, actually quite like it, just sort of trying it on and not having to worry about anything. You just get in there and play and not, not worry about it too much. Yeah, the, the, I, I like a psycho character too and I think the, the tricks often with exposition but also one of the things we didn't talk about is the importance of, of gaps and I think that was something that David was alluding to. If, there's, if you're given everything, then there's no space for you. So there was no space in Buffy for me. But if you're given just enough information for you to start to make, uh, uh, you know, make up the rest yourself, uh, that's when it gets interesting for you as a player. Mm. So, yeah. I, um, I actually really don't like first-person games. Um, I think that games like Bioshock, for instance, um, uh, they sort of amount to a kind of ghost train experience where you're in a sort of art asset corridor and it's heavily dressed and it's heavily staged and the narrative is kind of very heavily rolled out for you as you trigger certain you know, zonal triggers and stuff like that. Um, I like games where there's an opportunity for really great real-time control and polish, to use the kind of Steve Swink game feel thing. Um, I like games... I, like, I actually really get into characters like Bayonetta. You know, I think... I want, like... Like, I know what a film character does, and I know what um, a documentary narrative does, and I know what fiction does. I want to play games that are, like incredibly unique to the medium and so I like things like Bayonetta. I think that that's one of the reasons why Thief is so popular too yeah. because you're given a really set brief that mm. really constrains what you can do So, mm. and then with inside that you make up the sort of details around Garrett's character yeah. and play in different ways. You can't play in too many different ways but there's enough freedom yeah. and they're all about gameplay choices. I think, the, I think the other thing about games writing as well is that, you know, whether we like it or not, the, the predominant gaming audience is very, very young. And one of the things I don't... that annoys me particularly about first-person games is that they insist on bombarding um, the player with the minutiae of the adult world. So you play Bioshock and you listen to a recording and it's like, my wife did this and we couldn't pay the bills and blah, blah, blah. And it's like... The, the most banal aspects of the adult world inscribed into the game narrative and broadcast at the player. Mm. It's like if you're 12 years old and you're playing that game, you want to know, can my lightning make the power, the lights go on? <laughs> you know, like you want, 
that sense of you, who I'm you are. As a, <laughs> yeah, 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 you are. <laughs> that's it. You play Bioshock, and it's like all this stuff is happening, and you do your thing at a thing, and mm. nothing happens, you know. And it's yeah. like, it's like, you give me these recordings of this kind of Ayn Randian narrative, but you don't give me the affordances that would really make me deeply engage with the space. So I think we should um, grab another question. Uh, Thanks all very much. That was great. Um, the more I play games, the more I think about what happens with your hands and the way our hands, in a sense, think with our brains. In fact, probably think faster than our brains because of the sort of hand memory thing. Um, and we know what to press. And I think that's... For me, it, it, it has a key role to play in how we sort of immerse ourselves in the characters and, and, and the roles that the, the characters have to play and the role we play in making those characters move through the, the game universe. I'm just wondering if um, any of you had anything to say about that. I think um, if I compare the way my hands move and the way my, my the speed in which my hands move and everything, if I compare, say, when I play Super Meat Boy to when I play Journey... It's completely different, like completely different. It's, it's barely recognisable as doing the same activity. Um, Super Meat Boy, is, I have to be a machine to play that game because it's brutal mm. and you've got to go... And you've, you've, I'm, I'm even, I can't even relax in a beanbag and play it. I've got to be sitting bolt upright and I've got to... You know, and you, you're, you're sort of all like rigid. Everything's rigid and you're, you're playing it like this and, and eventually you can't do it anymore and you've got to just walk away. Whereas Journey, you can sort of just sort of... I could be lying down on my side playing Journey and just sort of just sliding around and playing and, and it's that, that fluid motion of... of you know, and, and flower, that kind of thing where you can actually... You don't even have to move your thumbs. You can just move your whole... Controller, you can you can go up and down, and even iPad stuff completely flips it on its head as well. And I think that has a that, that has an effect on you as a player and how you're connecting with the game. Because Super Meat Boy, I can't play that for longer than an hour before I'm ready to kill someone or myself. Oh my whatever comes first. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's I think it does have an effect on on how you interact with the game because it's 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 your physicality. We had a um, we had a Skype meeting once with Kaoru Shindo, who was one of the designers of the original. NES gamepad, and he said the entire design ph philosophy of the NES gamepad was that it was that it was meant to be an international language. So the idea was that you would create a piece of technology, and people would be able to play it, and no matter what language they spoke, it would make sense to them around the world. And I think games—that's um, a message that doesn't get broadcast very well. Nintendo do a terrible job of telling those stories. Mm. But, like, um, I really feel like when I'm controlling something, like when I play an Xbox, there is something almost... It's, it's a kind of, like, becoming American, almost. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, you are. And it's like, even if you're playing, yeah, Bayonetta on it, because it runs better than the PS3, you know, you're still through this, like, American lens, you know? Um, and I think about that a lot. I think, like, what I love about the wackiness of Wii controller and Kinect is that it gives you this feel of a national identity. Like, hey, I'm playing a Japanese game. I'm playing a really American game. That kind of stuff. I'm a very bad dyslexic, so I get thrown out of games a lot by forgetting how the controllers work and having to do this kind of visual check um, to remember, and particularly if I move between different consoles. So I, I find it really problematic, actually, because if you don't get that, fluid and happening, you're out. So, mm. yeah. Mm. And Buffy dies. 
<laughs> so, I, 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 do we have time for, for one more? Yeah, yep. Thank you. Um, just wanted to ask about game design. Do you think we're starting to go back to more 16-bit silhouette stuff with things like Super Meat Boy and legally evil scientists and what have you, or is that just...? I think... So, I think that the retro movement is... Um, interesting. So, so, people always make, remake particular games in the retro movement. No one's remaking, like, Rolling Thunder on the mm. Super Nintendo or whatever, you know? It's always a particular game with a particular look and so on. The thing that concerns me in the case of the games that you mentioned, but also things like Spelunky, for instance, is that the character is constrained to this small square box. And in silhouette terms, the, the silhouette is extremely kind of um, constrained. And you can say, well, you know, that doesn't matter so much because there's so many other <laughs> great ways that the game communicates. But actually, like, playing Spelunky, for instance, I'm super aware of how busy the screen is and the character gets lost in the context of the other characters. So you've got her little heroines and other, and other little guys that are, on, you know, that are like you and it's like they get lost amongst each other. And I kind of feel like the aesthetic of retro games now, it kind of has something to do with like the vinyl toy movement as, as well, you know, like with little Kublok bears and stuff. This very compact, super deformed, sort of chibi style character design. It loses the, the um, diversity of silhouette that you, that you should have in games. And it means that um, when players push for that, you get almost too much silhouette. It gets kind of crazy. Like, we played Skullgirls recently, the mm. indie brawler. Mm. And it's like the silhouettes are kind of, like, all over the place. You can't actually make out what is going on in there, you know? So I feel like in games design, where we flip and flop between one look and a different look, we lose that sense of best practice, like what works really, really well. And it's why we go back to things like Mario, like... When Mario gets a raccoon suit or a flower or whatever, it changes his silhouette. So immediately, in your, even in your peripheral vision, you, can just, you just know where you're at. And knowing something visually means knowing something mechanically. So like, it, those games do concern me with their particular approach. Mm. Anyone else have anything to add to that? Or? Oh, I mean, just the obvious that, you know, now we're on different platforms like the iOS devices and we're working with small team sizes and so there's a, obviously an incentive to kind of make games of that ilk. Mm -hmm. There's ways to distribute them now and, you know, and there's an audience for them. Mm -hmm. so. All right, well, um, I think we're out of time. So if you'll join me in thanking very much um, Pedro Batista and his amazing collection... <laughs> Lena Van Deventer, David Sermon, and Helen Stuffy. Thank you. Thank you very much to you also, Dan, for chairing this Thank evening. Thank you all for coming out. Um, these guys will probably hang around for a couple more minutes if you had any questions or wanted to take a closer look at, at Pedro's watches there. Um, maybe, yeah, maybe. No playing. I'll spread them out and you're more than welcome to come have a look. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it, uh, Replay is a monthly series. We've got two more in our series. Uh, next month we're going to be looking at the, um, the world of uh, simulated worlds and then following that we're going to be looking at the horror genre. 
uh, in October, so be sure to come back. Uh, we've also got some feedback forms just on the outside. If you had any uh, thoughts or feelings on tonight or if you had any ideas for any future sessions, just jot them down out there. Uh, and thank you again for coming out. You have been listening to an ACME podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to ACME channel and the ACME website.